Good afternoon, and welcome to Managing Insider Threats in an Era of Remote Workers and Increased Turnover, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we will take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Paul Carrillo, CISO at Innova Health System, Nate Lesser, VP and CISO at National Children's Hospital, and Nick Culbertson, co-founder and CEO at ProTennis. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Great topic today. Lots to talk about. Paul, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, so uh, here at Innova, we are a major health system in um, Northern Virginia with five hospitals throughout the area. Um, my role as CISO is uh, largely focused on uh, information assurance and cyber, cyber uh, threat hunting and threat protection. Um, we see a lot of activity in this space. All of us have seen a lot of activity in this space. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot that keeps us uh, up at night keeps us very busy during the day. All right, very good, Paul. Thank you, Nate. Sure. Uh, my name is Nate Lesser. I'm a CISO at Children's National Hospital. It's Children's National, not National Children's. And I always say that only because we don't want to get confused with Nationwide Children's, which is another um, top hot children's hospital in the country. Um, children's National is uh, is a top five pediatric healthcare system. Um, we've got about 60 sites in and around the DC area, and uh, the, I've been at I've been at Children's now for a little over three years. And um, like Paul, as the the CISO here, my responsibilities are somewhat wide ranging um, and cover anything information security related, um, including obviously operational risk management, uh, identity and access management, and you know the teams that implement um, all of those capabilities. We are, are constantly focused on the rising threat, both inside and outside of the hospital. Um, just today, another children's hospital, unfortunately, it appears went down pretty hard. Um, I guess it started yesterday in Chicago. So um, it's not that we are exempt or uh, unfortunately in any way immune from the attacks of those looking to exploit the environment, digital environments that we have. Uh, children's hospitals are often seen as a soft target and uh, hospitals where we have a lot of the most uh, sensitive and valuable information. So uh, we deal with the same kind of uh, advanced nation state threats and of course all the standard commoditized threats that everybody else is dealing with across the environment. Well, I, you know, Nate, that's, uh, thanks for bringing that up. So anybody who might be under the illusion that the bad guys would stay away from children's hospitals would be mistaken, correct? Yeah, unfortunately so. Unbelievable. All right, very good. Nick? Hey, everyone. Nick Culbertson, CEO and co-founder of Pertennis. Uh, we use AI to help automate hospital compliance workflows. Uh, specifically, we focus on two areas. Uh, we use AI to monitor activities and health data to identify uh, privacy violations and other insider threats. 
we also uh, assess activity using um, narcotics and other sensitive pharmaceuticals to proactively detect and prevent uh, drug diversion or, or theft of drugs. Excellent. Thank you, Nick. All right. Uh, let's jump right into the meat of it. Um, how would you describe the fluidity of the workforce today versus pre-pandemic? Paul, we're going to start with you. Sure. So um, you know, during the pandemic, we, we had the rush to uh, remote access, sending everybody home and, and trying to figure out, figure out our way through that. Um, Post-pandemic, uh, things are beginning to normalize. We've gotten comfortable with that, that arrangement. Uh, and uh, now we're seeing some flow back to the office, but there's, it's, still, it's still quite a mix. Um, there's probably, uh, probably for the foreseeable future, going to be more hybrid or remote work in, in the workforce um, because now we've realized that we can actually do that. So uh, I think that's one dynamic. The other is that with work from home, uh, uh, we, uh, we tend to hire more outside of the area. Um, and uh, folks feel more um, comfortable with looking beyond the horizons for employment. So that kind of changed the dynamic as far as uh, who's available for the workforce in any particular area. So that's that's something that, um, I, I can't say it's new anymore, but that's something that we've had to deal with here in the last you know, year, year and a half. Okay, very good. We'll get into the implications of that. Nate, how would you describe the fluidity of the workforce today? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's some important drivers, especially when you think about there's workforce writ large and then there's workforce when it comes to information security. Um, I am not my, my background prior to this was not in healthcare, And so I'm much more of sort of a horizontal guy, cybersecurity across lots of different fields and to different verticals. So I was surprised coming into a healthcare system to learn the extent to which back office functions. We all think of hospitals as, you know, it's an in-person function. Care delivery is an in-person function. It has to be. But the even in the world where there's a you know move to to telehealth, but I was surprised by the extent to which it's challenging for healthcare systems to get around the regulatory and compliance requirements, which is really a cultural change, right? It's really about saying, oh, we can split our workforce. We these these are jobs and functions that don't have to be performed on site. Um, this is a, it's it's really new. It's it, it's different. Um, and it's not the same in healthcare as it, it would be in, you know, financial services or, or you know, technology. Um, so that's one component of it that still, I think, you know, certainly we're experiencing the, the continuation of that cultural change and, and a pivot to the idea that we can uh, hire folks that uh, might be in uh, places where the cost of living is lower uh, and therefore, you know, have an opportunity to, um uh, to uh, spend less uh, for the same high quality skill set. At the same time, from a cybersecurity perspective, we have just all all kinds of headwinds, right? We're we're a little bit off of the the um, all time high of uh, of, of supply the, the supply demand ratio for cybersecurity talent, um, but it's still incredibly high. It's, it, today it sits at seventy two percent 
according to to NICE, the, the National Institute uh, Standards of Technology program for uh, cyber education. And that means that 72% of the cybersecurity jobs are filled. We've got just shy of uh, 1.2 million cybersecurity professionals in the in the country, and we have uh, slightly under 600,000 cybersecurity job openings. That's a that's a huge delta, and it's not one that's going to be filled easily or quickly. So we have to look for more creative solutions to staffing um, and you know ways to find force multipliers in order to both it to cost effectively meet the continually rising needs that we have. Very good, Nate. Nick, your thoughts on what you're seeing with your customers regarding the fluidity of the workforce? So I, I think about the uh, dynamics uh, and turnover in three different levels uh, in healthcare. The first is, I think the most obvious, just the high volume of turnover we've seen since the pandemic. We talk about this a lot generally in the industry, but I, I don't think... Um, uh, everyone really appreciates how how large and how significant the turnover has been. We saw with some of our customers as much as 50% in a year where they have an entire new half of the health system. Uh, and so all of the compliance and cultural implications that, that Nate was talking about, I think are spot on. Uh, the second is leadership. We have seen a lot of leadership turnover uh, in the past three or four years and I think that has implications for strategy, planning, and delay of a lot of initiatives as new leadership takes a step in and takes the time to get assessment of the organization and really get up and running. Uh, and then the last, I think, is um, you know relevant to, to companies like mine, but hitting vendors. Uh, we've, de we've dealt with companies where we've had had longer support tickets or other times uh, uh, docu support documentation because new uh, individuals are turning over uh, vendors and it makes it more difficult to work through those partnerships. Um, and so I think the combination of all three of those is really what is making this uh, this labor market pretty dynamic and difficult for hospital systems. All right, very good. Next question. Um, Nate, we're going to start with you. Um, talk about the relationship between staff turnover and security especially insider threats. What are the best ways to ensure IT security is notified in a timely manner when people are hired, fired, or have a change in their role that requires a change in their access? And you get into identity and access management uh, and all that type of thing, making sure the permissions are correct. Um, and besides HR, are there any other departments that, that you need to be working with as a security professional to make sure you are informed when things change that would require you to do something. Sure. So, I, I mean, I think like a lot of challenges, it's multifaceted and we have to look at it from the perspective of um, technology, policy, governance. Um, I, I guess I would start with the first question, the, the last question first and say, of course, right? You have to work with all departments across your environment. Um, Obviously, HR is critical, and if in in any environment where we, we could design it from the ground up, um, you know, a pristine environment that did not come with any legacy technology or policy debt, um, we would say, oh, well, you know, there's a standard HR process for offboarding. Everybody applies it consistently, and um, we have a single identity store, and 
the complete integration between our ERP system, our identity and access management systems, and then all downstream applications. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Right. Unfortunately, healthcare, like just about every other, um, you know, vertical, but I, I would say care delivery especially is such an organic growth of, uh, of digital technology being bolted onto traditional uh, solutions for you know, the combination of care delivery point of care and uh, everything from you know charting to financials and back office and rev cycle and everything else under the sun. So we find ourselves, and, and, and you'll see this in, in systems of varying sizes, but the larger you get, the more likely you are to uh, be in a, an incredibly diverse technology environment. And you have to start driving towards standardization. The problem is it's very expensive to do so, right? So if you've grown through acquisition, let's say, and brought in a lot of, uh, you know, out outpatient centers or a, a couple of additional hospitals all under one system, you'll find that the cost associated with getting everybody on the same ERP is, is off the charts. But until you have a single identity store, where you can, uh, you know, drive trust out of of that environment until you have everybody adhering to a single policy for moves and 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 changes for for um, you know levers for people who are terminated from your environment. It's going to be very difficult to get your hands around this. Um, so I would say it's it's very much about working with every department and uh, outside of HRs and, and IT certainly. Um, what are the best ways to do it? Uh, even in the absence of an expensive and kind of brand new ERP system or integration, um, there's a lot that you can do from a policy and education perspective. And that's that's really about cultural change, right? That's out about communication and ensuring that you're out in the environment. So if that's if you're like us, a teaching hospital, in addition to being a research center, you're going to have different people in the credentialing space that you have to deal with. And prior to um, the onboarding or offboarding of a, of a care provider, they're going to have to review and submit credentialing paperwork. And that's going to be integrated into your system. You have to understand where those checks are and, and ensure that your those systems are either integrated or you have a very tightly coupled process for offline um application and, and removal of entitlements for staff that leave. So it, it's real tough, um, but it it can be done. It can be done well, uh, even in the absence of a expensive and costly uh, set of technical integrations. Excellent. Thank you, Nate. Uh, Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, uh, I just want to pivot on, on one aspect that Nate brought up, and that's um, the diverse nature of the population's that make up the workforce within within healthcare. Um, many of us will have good solid processes, whether automated or manual, uh, dealing with uh, the employed workforce, <clears throat> team members, associates, whatever label we use for that, but the employed workforce. Um, but that's not the total workforce. We have partners, we have consultants, we have contractors, we have auditors, we have other various populations, they all need access. 
and the identity for those don't all come through the main ERP. We'd love it if they would, but a lot of times that's not feasible. So um, best way really to get a handle on that is to identify and understand who all the stakeholders are for each of those populations and just uh, start with a conversation around how do we know that these are the identities we want in our system? How do we know that? Um, and certainly work towards that. Uh, many of us in healthcare have done that to some degree, I'm sure. Um, but that probably varies with the available time you have to <laughs> concentrate on that particular problem. But if we don't understand the identities coming into our environment, uh, it's going to be really hard for us to understand later uh, when we're dealing with an event, whether or not that population or somebody within that population should have had access in the first place. Um, so uh, one of the, I'll just emphasize that one of the best ways to to get a handle on that is to communicate is and is to seek out those those stakeholders um, and document along the path. Um, what you end up with might be an automation system, maybe it might be a manual process, uh, but that's certainly a starting point. Um, <clears throat> with uh, with respect to that, it's also important for us to understand what we're going to do in the face of uh, degraded or unavailable systems when we start talking about identity management and access or giving access to people so that they can they can do the important work of healthcare within our environments uh we need to be thinking about business continuity along those lines as well um what do we do when the process begins to falter some key component isn't available we can't we can't forget that as as we're working our way through uh through that piece um how do we ensure the right parties are informed on changes to uh, workforce? That's that's a really good question. Uh, for us, it's certainly HR, uh, and it's also physical security, the badging uh, system, um, and then of course each of the each of the departments that are affected by the the hiring, transfer, and termination of of employees. Um, it's, it starts with that communication, though. I mean, we, we really it, it just have to get right back to making sure that we're, we're a known quantity in that conversation and that we know all the other stakeholders. Uh, because without that, we're still, we're still shooting in the dark. Excellent, Paul. Thank you. Nick, your thoughts? Paul and, and, and Nate have both covered a lot of ground on this topic, but I think the only thing I would add is, is not the relationship within a department, but more generally, the relationship with middle management across the organization. Excuse me, my dog is barking. But um, the result of turnover for management means that there's a higher burden on training new staff, which is uh, can suck away time from other standard operations, especially if you don't have the same uh, senior leadership that you managers usually rely on. Um, I was talking to a customer recently that said they had 100% turnover month to month for some of their analysts on a team. And so when you're constantly retraining the same role month over month, that's a large amount of your time that's pulled away from standard operations to make sure that your team is fully up to speed and fully compliant. Yes, turnover uh, can drain a lot of positive energy into places that it might not need to go. Um, Next question, Nick, we're going to stick with you. Talk about the relationship between remote workers 
especially those who may be hired in a fully remote capacity and insider threats. The idea here is in the past, um, the onboarding process always involved face-to-face time, time in the office, time to absorb the culture of the organization, more chances for uh, sort of molding the individual. And if you've hired someone that you perhaps have never met in person, you know, you may not know them as well. I'm sure there's, there's background checks and things that can be done, but I wonder if it's not inevitable that there's some sort of increased risk from the concept of hiring somebody fully remotely and never having that, that time together. What are your thoughts there, Nick? I think there's a lot of advantages that remote work provides, but the the reality is remote work just adds another layer of complexity for this issue, uh, especially from an insider threat perspective. And I mean that from everything from, uh, you know, monitoring uh, individual traffic, IP addresses, uh, straight out to really understanding who your workforce is. There's been lots of anecdotes of people doing multiple jobs or offloading, offshoring their own jobs. Uh, and you know the fact that you can't see that person come and see office every day uh, creates a lot of uh, um, a lot of risk for organizations from that insider threat perspective. Um, Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, I would say that that the standoff engagement here is what makes us harder for companies. Uh, there is a tendency, human nature being what it is, a, a tendency to um, assume trust in communications that that we should perhaps challenge. Uh, and here more so than in any, any other uh, situation, in the traditional sense, you typically have to go into the HR department with your two picture IDs and proof of employment, um, uh, employability, get a picture taken, and then you're off to your, your job. Well, that's really changed here in the last few years. Um, and the use of technology uh, is, is kind of a stand-in for that and creates the risk that uh, we, we assume trust and we fail to verify. And that's usually where we start having problems in, in these traditional processes. Um, I lean towards having at least one on-site visit to confirm identities and, and, and have that engagement. It's, shouldn't be that terribly expensive. Sure, there's a plane ticket and a hotel and that piece, but that should be incorporated into uh, the enculturation into into the organization, I think. And, and um, that's something that uh, we sort of do here. We don't do that too broadly because it's kind of hard. We're talking about when we hire nurses, we're hiring a lot of nurses. Uh, so we have turnover there, so that makes it rather, rather difficult. Um, so there is some risk in hiring somebody who isn't who they say they are and we don't find out about it until later it becomes something that we have to have to handle um finding other ways to get that positive identification through technology uh, i think is possible um, but again we need to review the the technology that we intend to use to do that and uh, for instance we might say well we'll 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 use certificates and we'll have this mfa kind of thing and because all that stuff is there, we can assume again that uh, the process can't be subverted. Well, we don't know that unless we actually look at the process and analyze it. So that's that's something I think we need to challenge ourselves with and, and make sure that we understand how sure that process really is, especially for those that are never going to be on site in the first place. 
Very good. Nate, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I guess um, I agree with everything that uh, that both Nick and Paul said. I, I just, I, I come to a slightly different conclusion, um, and it's probably a bit of a contrarian one, but I, 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 we, we, I don't think I would ever hire someone who, um, without having at least some cadence, even if it's only annually, of getting together in person. Um, that said, we consider those people to be, you know, full-time remote workers. And one of the things that we're forced to do, and this is exactly what Paul, I think, was saying, is, is ratchet up other controls to ensure that over the life cycle of someone's employment, we are, in fact, ensuring that they're managed properly, that they're getting the resources that they need, and that they're doing the work that we're expecting of them. And the and I think the management challenges there are unique and different and 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 varied. However, from an insider threat perspective, I think as we've all seen, someone can be working on site in the hospital and be a intentional, fraudulent or you know destructive insider. Someone can be working from home and 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 be the same. What I think helps in the hybrid world that we live in today is that we're all very much, I think, much more conscious of both intentional and unintentional insiders. And in a hybrid environment, we're looking for the controls that help us to get a better handle on potential fraudulent activity, whether intentional from that user or unintentional, that person got duped and there's a somebody taking over their accounts or doing something fraudulent uh, with their credentials. And, and that results, I think, in us being stronger overall. So, you know, we could, in a, it used to be, I think we were lulled into a little bit of a false sense of security around the idea that if I can look at somebody, I, I know what's going on in their head, or if I can see them, I they're, they're working inside the four walls of our, our building, and therefore they're likely more secure. Turns out in the digital world, that's just not true. We know that now. And so we should be constantly looking for the controls that help us to secure our, our staff and the systems they touch, regardless of where they're working from. Very good. Very good. All right. Next question, Paul, we're going to start with you. Um, and we touched on this idea of sort of multifaceted approach. Many think the threat of insider breaches is higher than ever. What are some best practices for preventing and discovering these? Um, and again, touch on the the multiple, multi-pronged approach of technology, education, and governance. I think you could substitute policies for uh, either education or governance, or maybe that's a fourth. I don't know. What are your thoughts there, Paul? Yeah, I see all of those areas as kind of tools in a way of, of addressing this, but this really boils down to uh, management style and engagement, um, it, it, uh, maybe under the education component here, um, but ensuring that uh, managers and leaders within the workforce are uh, uh, aware um, and have been provided sufficient tools to understand and respond to situations that could be insider, insider effects and know who to engage. Um, and not be afraid to, to do that engagement. Um, uh, certainly having a, a robust uh, compliance capability to help respond on that is, is going to be necessary. And by robust, I don't mean a large workforce. I'm, I'm, I mean um, uh, dedicated and knowledgeable folks who can help and help guide uh, management in 
um, identifying the, the, the indications and warnings that lead to insider threat activity. Um, as far as the technology piece is concerned, certainly having the tools in place like Protenus, uh, looking at situations that could be precursors to fraud or precursors to insider threat um, uh, behaviors, uh, and then having folks uh, respond to those indications. Uh, and that's an actually really important point here, because a lot of times people will put a tool in and it's okay, we got a tool running, it will take care of the house for us. That's not true. Uh, we actually need to spend time understanding the information that 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 technology is producing uh, in order to understand whether or not we have such a situation and need to need to deal with it. Um, the, the last piece here, the governance piece, uh, it's important that the workforce understand the organization's position with respect to uh, insider threat, and maybe not even calling it out as just insider threat that has a kind of a big brother feel to it, but rather ensure that folks understand that we you know, we've, we hired you to do a job and we really want you to be successful in that job and we expect you to be engaged in that job. Um, uh, and that if for some reason there's a problem there that we would like that engagement rather than have that turn into a situation, um, uh, an adverse situation that results in harm to the organization, harm to individuals. Um, so that would be the kind of the discovering and, and uh, preventing aspects, I think, of, of dealing with uh, insider threats. And that's not the end all be all, but uh, I think that would be a, you know, a, a good starting point. Very good, Nate. Yeah, no, I agree completely with what Paul said. I, I think it's helpful. There's some models out there on what we sometimes call human risk management. To just pick up on the last thing Paul was talking about around, you know, insider threats a little um, can be a little narrow. And frankly, most of the time, I think what we care about is visibility, right? How do we know what's happening? whether that is somebody intentionally or unintentionally doing something they shouldn't sort of outside of the bounds of their um, their job or the controls um, access controls that we have in place and a piece of the that is really i think best communicated to staff around how do we help as the information security professionals in your organization how do we help protect you how do we help protect your accounts? How do we help to ensure that the threats that you're facing aren't going to be successful? And that's a partnership. That's a lot of that is education. And a lot of it is uh, is about the technology that gives us visibility into uh, the, acti the digital activity in their environment. And I think that's where you are able to sometimes bridge the gap from what feels a little big brother-esque to um you know thinking about it much more in terms of just like my home security system um so i i think that partnership is critical and that's that's what i would focus on very good nick oh you're on mute buddy I apologize. My dog's been <laughs> a lot. So I tried to save you guys the noise. I didn't mean to do that. No um, I, I, I want to reiterate um, the idea about trust and verify and how important it is to be proactively monitoring and, and enforcing policies at scale. Not because we think that there is a lot of people in our organizations that are creating risk, 
But the reality is it's very difficult, very difficult to identify the few people that are creating that risk uh, when they are uh, when you have a large organization, you have so much uh, activity. Um, it's very difficult to proactively identify those hotspots and make sure you're focusing on, on those risk mitigations. Um, the other thing that I wanted to add is a little bit about uh, along the lines of the broken window policies. Uh, we know that some of the most egregious insider incidents don't just come out of nowhere. They build up over time and monitoring and addressing minor risk and, and the, the small stuff that builds up is really important to, to be proactive in both the uh, uh, catching it before it gets too worse, but also using it as an opportunity to educate. We see a lot of the times where individuals are caught um you know, going beyond their scope or, or uh, using data beyond their uh, their provisions. And usually their answer is, oh, I didn't know that. I, I wasn't aware, even though they took the new employee training. Um, but uh, being able to come back and, and use that example to educate right there and say, no, no, this is not, this is against our policy. You're not supposed to be doing that. That has such an impact on reducing the overall risk uh, uh, landscape because left unchecked, those individuals would continue to build up that behavior and push the limits. And that's where you get some of the more uh, egregious incidents that build up over time. Uh, Nick, let's talk a little bit about policy and then we'll, we'll bring in Nate and Paul. Um, I've you know interviewed a lot of CISOs and we talk about policies. One issue is that the policies have to be written so they're understandable by non-security professionals, non-IT professionals, who, who are really the main target of the policies. Well, not you know, one of the main targets. So you can have policies that are written in too complex a way. They're not understandable, and they could be kind of useless. So people are trying to make sure that doesn't happen. And the other thing is communicating the policy, right? So you don't ideally want to be in a situation where somebody says, I had no idea. Right. You want to be able to demonstrate, no, number one, we have a very readable policy. And number two, we know you looked at it because you had to, because we have the audit trail that says you received this education. So talk a little bit about policies. I think the, the key, I agree everything Damon, you said, that it has to be something that's clear and easy to understand. It has to be something that you can educate. But I think the most important is that they have to be enforceable. Uh, I think a really good example of this, and this is outside of healthcare, but when you look back at a lot of the nuclear disarmament work that happened in the, um, you know, the 1900s, we could detect nuclear bombs that were occurring uh, un underground or in the water, but or, or, I'm sorry, we could detect them in the air or, or underwater, but you can't detect them if they're underground. And if you can't detect them, then you can't enforce a policy. And I think a lot of compliance uh, policies in healthcare are the same way, that if you're asking someone not to do it, but you're not monitoring or not identifying it, and, and you don't have a response on how to handle it, if you do find it, um, then it's it's not really a policy um, because it's not enforced. And so I think the key is to be able to map your policies to procedures, and that it involves a lot of partnership and really understanding, okay, if someone does do this, what are the ramifications? What uh, are the sanctions? What are, how are we going to deal with it? And how are we going to include folks like HR and others to make sure that we're, uh, um, you know, being very equitable in our handling of uh, uh, breaches of, of compliance as well? That's great stuff, Nick. And I, I'd like to bring in, let me bring in Nate first. Um, this concept of policies have to map to procedures. Um, so, you know, here's what you're supposed to be doing. 
we can tell when this wasn't done and here's what's going to happen if it wasn't done. Yeah. So I, I think Nick makes a fantastic point. And I, I would just say it's true at, at the macro level and it's true at the micro level. I think visibility is essential from a technology perspective to be able to you know, see in what's happening in your environment. Um, but if you don't have that visibility in place and if you don't have the procedural uh, controls to be able to enforce policy, what you end up doing actually is only punishing those people who are the good actors. The only time you'll ever hear about it is when someone calls and says, I think I screwed up. And then all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, well, you can't do that. And you make their life harder rather than approaching it from the, I mean, you know, you can have policies in place that aren't consistently enforced. It's a bad idea, but you can do it. And if you do it that way, when you hear about in a kind of ad hoc fashion, somebody violating policy because they have come to you to let you know that you have to find a way to reward them rather than punish it, right? You have to completely flip the equation on its head. Um, and so I would agree, those aren't really enforced policies. Those are just uh, out there as aspirational goals. Paul? Yeah, I, I would, excellent, well said. And I would add to that, that the expectations need to be enculturated into the, into the workforce. And what I mean by that is uh, setting the tone from the top down that um, we expect a certain type of behavior even when no one is watching uh, and that, that we you know we expect that to be a personal pride point or a point of honor or a point of integrity uh, so certainly pressing on that in our policy language uh, will help us kind of be proactive kind of ahead of, of the curve um, uh, but yeah, certainly having the ability to do uh, detection and response uh, is uh, also vitally important because it's if you have a rule <laughs> and you've never enforced the rule, even when um, even when you think there's no problem, uh, the first time you enforce that rule, it's going to be challenged, um, and it's probably going to set a tone in the environment that uh, if you haven't planned for that. Uh, could create, um, I won't say it's an adverse uh, environment, but uh, an undesirable, an undesirable outcome. Uh, so, uh, really, kind of posturing the policy in a positive tone to to drive the behaviors that that we're expecting as part of who we are um, uh, will help uh, will help us in 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 that regard. I think. All right, very good. We got an audience question I want to put in front of the panel. What do you think about technology that reviews employees' productivity, such as login times, number of keystrokes, data entry, number of emails sent? Is this a good means of assessing productivity, or is it just micromanaging? Nick, let's t let's go to you first on this one. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this a lot, especially as a fully remote organization. Um, my personal opinion on, on this matter is, is twofold. First, uh, I think it's really important to measure results of employee work, not necessarily um, uh, their approach, especially as a software development uh, organization. We have a lot more flexibility than uh, care providers um, that we, we help service. But um, if an employee is stepping away from their laptop, but they're still getting the work done, is is it a problem? Um, so I think that's important to to, to keep in mind. Um, the other aspect is is going back to the point of of enforcement. 
what are you going to do if you find that someone is not typing on the keys as much as you'd like them? And I think having that conversation before you decide whether you want to monitor or not is the more important question. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because uh, keystrokes, somebody could be writing a screenplay and <laughs> nothing to do, nothing to do with the work. And you say, this is one of our stars. They're fantastic. Um, having a little fun with that. Nate, your thoughts on that audience question? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the um, my feeling is it's a terrible way to manage productivity. <laughs> I mean, it's just I, you have a lot of examples. I think yours is a good one of you know how it just doesn't align with the outcomes you're looking for. Uh, at the same time, I think it's very valuable information from an investigation and audit perspective. Um, and I think it's important that back to policy, you communicate very clearly um, with staff across your organization. I can't tell you the number of times that I hear from people, what do you mean you have access to my personal tax information when I stored my taxes, my, my tax return on my personal, on my corporate device? Well, your corporate device is ours. So anything stored there is ours. And yeah, if you, I'm not saying we're walking around looking for it, but when you leave the organization and come to me and say, you know, I need somebody in IT to download the, you know, 10 gigs of personal family photos onto a flash drive, because that's the only device I've had for the last 20 years. You know, we we recognize the world we live in. We try and accommodate. But the, the reality is, you know, we own your family photos, too. And you have to communicate that up front. You have to continue to drive that point home. It's, you know, it's part of our, our sort of annual and, and frankly, annual training, I think, stinks and needs to be thrown out and revised. But um, we need to we need to keep communicating that very clearly. So I think these are useful, can be useful data points when it comes to audit and investigation. But man, I think they're terrible from a primary management uh, data perspective. Paul, are you giving back the family photos or are you keeping them? Well, we've had that conversation uh, at various points. Uh, that's easier said than done. Somebody's gonna have to review all of that information. Oh, Every wow. Every one of them. It's not very exactly. easy to do. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I Echo what um, uh, Nick and Nate have said here. Uh, yes, as soon as we start collecting, uh, that sets a tone too. And we need to be cognizant of what that means to the workforce. Now, if the workforce thinks it's being monitored um, for, well, for any reason at all, their minds are going to run wild on that. So um, I would say that if you're worried about productivity, um, it's time to have a direct conversation about that. Um, and it, and the onus is really on the team lead, the manager, the director, the, the person who is responsible for that portion of the workforce to have that conversation. Um, uh, I, I think we, we have a tendency towards, oh, I can implement a tool that's going to collect all this great information on everybody everywhere. I know all your screenshots, all your keystrokes, everything. Well, uh, first of all, that's a large amount of information, and there's a cost associated with that. Um, secondly, do you really need to do that, or do you just need to have a conversation and set the right culture within those teams to ensure that you've got the right engagement, even in the world of remote workforce? Uh, when I conduct meetings, I am almost always on video. Rarely am I not on video, and I encourage my team members to do the same, and they know that. I want to see them. I want to have the interaction with them. And I interact with them 
all day long. Um, sometimes it's ad hoc and sometimes it's scheduled. Uh, so that level of engagement, management engagement is necessary if we really want to um, address uh, uh, productivity. And uh, more importantly, it's about the results. Just as Nick said, it's about the results. It's not about how you got there. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got teams that are producing well, why do you care if they're sitting in front of their laptop or working off their phone at their kid's soccer game or whatever? They're still producing. They're still providing value to the organization. Yeah, let me just add, I, I, th I think the times when we've seen it come up, you know, good or bad, uh, are usually from an investigation standpoint. And because uh, Paul and I and anyone in uh, care delivery, anyone in a hospital system has at least a partially unionized workforce, there are times when saying this person isn't getting their job done, when their frontline manager saying that isn't sufficient, they need, you know, material evidence to show they haven't logged in in a month and just not shown up remotely or in person. Um, so I, again, I think there are, it's important to communicate. I think there are times when it's valuable from an investigation and an audit perspective. Um, but I couldn't agree more with with Nick and Paul about its sort of lack of value in a in a standard management environment. All right, very good. Um, we're going to go to our ask a co-panelist section here, which I love. I uh, want to see what what you folks want to know from each other, or the advice uh, guidance that you would find helpful. So, Nick, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I do. This is both for uh, both for Nate and Paul. Um, we've been talking a lot about staff turnover and the implications of that, but I mentioned this earlier. We we see it a lot with um, uh, the implications with turnover at the executive level and how that affects the organizations. And I know both of you have been at in your uh, current roles for a number of years now, but I'm curious whether at your organization or your peers, what have you seen at the executive level as a result of turnover from uh, leadership top down? Uh, Paul, why don't you go first? Uh, what have I seen? Um, there can be some turmoil if not managed correctly or, or um, positively. Um, uh, but other than other than that, I, I think it's still business as usual as far as the uh, tr transition process. Yes, you're going to have a new person. The, the seat's going to be empty for a while. You'll have an interim. Uh, you'll have a new person. There's there's that uh, to consider. But that's really for the business unit to focus in on and not so much the security side of the house. Um, that's... Um, uh, yeah, we've we've not had that much turnover here in the last few years. So we've had a little bit, but not not too much. Um, so yeah, I, I would say um, those situations are we have more hands on when we go through those transition processes. Um, but other than that, I've, nothing nothing really you know um, pressing comes to mind. Nate. Yeah, I guess um, we've we've had more uh, leadership turnover in the last year than um, I think in in many many years before, um, and I've seen it. I, I, to me, it comes down to communication. Um, I guess two things: communication, and preparation. Right. So, paraphrasing, I don't know who, 
I'll have to go back and look for this quote. I, I, there's a concept that you success um, at an executive level, you know, whether it's the CEO of a business or a business unit owner is really best measured by the success of that uh, business or business unit when they're the leader departs, mm-hmm. not the success while they're there. Um, so I've seen mm-hmm. business units whose leaders left um, set up for success where they you know, really have a good succession plan in place and they're off and running and largely without you know, significant pain. Um, I've seen others where uh, it's abrupt and surprising to the staff and all of a sudden there's a lot of scrambling. Um, I obviously, I'm not sure how to either measure or what, from a security perspective, what better controls we could put in place. But, you know, we often are the first to know that an executive's leaving. It's or the second, perhaps, to know um, before it's publicly announced, before we get we get that call that says at 7.55 tomorrow or 7.55 on Monday, we want access cut off for this executive. Um, it would be great if there were a way for us to kind of you know, ratchet up or down security controls around the rest of the team so that if there's someone who says, wow, this boss who I loved was just fired, I hate the organization, I'm going to go, you know, set the building on fire. Um, we had, you know, better visibility, better controls. I don't know how that would work, but that that would be pretty cool. All right. Very good. Nate, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I have a question for Nick. I, I mean, you there were many years where we were talking a lot about user behavioral analytics, like UBA was this big thing and it was going to be the panacea that would help us to, again, ratchet up or down our controls um, entirely based on the risk uh, posed by certain individuals or the risk to certain individuals. I feel like I've lost the bubble on it a little bit. And given your place in the industry, I'm curious what, what you're seeing as, as the current trends uh, around analytics in terms of extracting good, useful information from the systems that we have. Yeah, I think it's not talked about as much as a buzzword, but it's still really prevalent in a lot of uh, technologies. Like there's a lot of elements to the Portennis platform that uses uh, end user behavior. I think the important part is what we were talking about earlier in terms of like, what are you measuring? What are you going to do for do with that information? When we talk to customers about potential new product development, and they always ask, oh, could you detect this or could you detect that? And it's like, the first thing I ask is, what would you do with that information? If I detected when an employee did this, how would you how would you respond? What's the protocol? Because what you don't want to do is just detect things that there's not really a course of action to respond uh, to. And so I think the important question is, you know, not um, not necessarily just focusing on like OUEBA and like what can it do, but actually what are the compliance protocols that we want to enforce and how do we detect them? The example that, that you gave earlier about, um, you know, you may be monitoring every single activity, but we need to know if someone's coming to work every day and just look at using their audit, audit log is a really good example. Like, are they logging in every day? And so that's a reactive investigation to confirm and prove some kind of behavior um, that is necessary as part of an investigation. But then setting up a proactive alerting process that says we're going to fire off an alarm every time someone doesn't show some level of productivity on a day they've checked in. You can imagine how that could create a lot of a lot of challenges. And so um, I think it's still really important, but it really comes down to what are you, tr- what behaviors are you trying to detect and how is that feeding into your compliance and what kind of enforcement can you do with it? 
All right, very good. Paul, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I, I do, and probably for both. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you see that organizations face when trying to introduce an insider threat program? Uh, Nick, why don't you go first? I want to make sure I understood uh, the biggest challenges when trying to put in place an insider threat. Trying to introduce the concept of, yeah, an insider threat program at an, an organization. Uh, I would say in our experience working with health systems to to build up or either start from scratch or build up build out uh, a monitoring program, I think one of the more challenging things is um, getting the right stakeholders involved early. Uh, and I'll reinforce a couple points we've made throughout this whole talk, but uh, a lot of situations we've seen occur where if you use a tool like ours, like AI or automation to monitor more activity, you end up finding more activity. That results in downstream uh, work for HR, human resources, or other parts of organization turnover where you have to then respond to it. And if those people were not involved in building up the program, they haven't been able to prepare uh, for that cultural change, that culture shift. And so really making sure leadership is all bought in for the, the change of approach where you are taking a, a more proactive posture to monitoring and, and uh, proactively detecting preventing. You have to make sure you have the right stakeholders in place. Otherwise, what happens is you your department changed, but everyone else is trying to catch up. Great point. Nate? Um, yeah, I mean, I can say from our experience, the answer would be scope. Um, I mean, insider threat means all kinds of things to all kinds of people. Um, so I think I agree with Nick that you got to have the right stakeholders at the table, but it's really hard to, or, or at least we've had some real challenges with uh, scoping a program that allows us to have enough success early on uh, that we can say, yeah, this is worth continuing to do. Um, so I think we're still in the nascent stages of trying to sort through that. All right, very good. Let's go with a lightning round of final thoughts before I, I let everyone go. So best piece of advice for someone in your position at a comparably sized health system, Nick, you can adjust that as need be for sort of your uh, maybe middle middle of the road customer in terms of size. Best piece of advice when, when trying to deal with this insider threat issue. Paul, let's go with you first. Uh, I would say engagement and communication. Uh, uh, talk often with your your peer group. Talk often above and below your peer group. Uh, uh, keep the topic fresh without being overbearing. Um, I think that's probably the best advice I can I can give. As an organization, each organization finds their own path. They figures out uh, they figure out the right way to deliver such a program. Uh, but it's it's one that that should be talked about. So the, so certainly engagement and communication. And as the CISO, you're probably the it to get it going, unless you've got a chief compliance officer or somebody in that sphere uh, who's uh, just as passionate or more passionate than you are. Very good, Nate. I guess I would say hospitals don't generally buy into the truism that the only constant is change. <laughs> um, so you know, I think that at the end of the day. Um, people in our line of work are change agents, right? Cultural change agents. And so you have to balance the uh, goals that you have around change, standardization being a big one of them in my in my book, with uh, the ability to empower staff, right? We spend a lot of time talking about 
how our staff are our cyber first responders. But that means they have to have a, a reasonable amount of, of training and you need to provide them with the resources to know what to do when faced with a challenge. Um, that breeds confidence and builds the workforce that you need that extends well beyond those people who report to you. Excellent. Nick, we'll give you the last thought, last word. Uh, I agree with everything Nate said. Uh, Paul actually took my answer. Uh, and so I just want to reinforce <laughs> it. Education is so important, but engagement is what's really tricky. You can push out a lot of new employee training or annual training to, to reinforce the workforce, what their expectate, what your expectations for them are. But not waiting for something bad to happen to go out to the organization and talk with folks, I think is really important. I was just talking to our privacy officer internally about, you know, we did a lot of training in compliance month early, late in 2023 and, and now it's what's next. And what she's planning is meeting with the different divisions, different teams and talk to them about what's the expectation? When should you reach out to me? When should we get engaged? When should we talk to me? So that people uh, you know, have that little bug in their ear to think like, oh, this is the moment where I should reach out to let security or privacy or compliance know um, to be involved. And if you don't do that, what ends up happening is you have to then build those relationships in the middle of the disaster. And that's that's something that I know a, a lot of folks listening have probably gone through and something that it's really difficult to build up that muscle memory to uh, avoid over time. Excellent. All right. Uh, that's about all we had time for today. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an on, uh, email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. Go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel. Great conversation today. Paul Carrillo, Nate Lesser, and Nick Culbertson. And I want to thank ProTennis for making this conversation possible and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.